Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to close your heart initially if that's what you're being called to do, if that's in, if that's what your pain is is asking you to do in the moment, or if that's all you're capable of in the moment. I think that ultimately, if you're moving through your life with a closed heart because of this one event, no matter how tragic it was, you're not doing yourself any service. So I I just recognize, you know, from many experiences in my life, I know what it's like to move through my life with an open heart to move through through my life with um, with love as a guiding force and with the desire to connect with others from a vulnerable open and loving space it has transformed my life profoundly so I, I feel like when we have the experience and if you look at the th the reasons let's say you're you were dumped you know you you were you were in love and the person left you and you were left completely heartbroken by that experience which is why many of us would be inclined to shut down and to close our hearts because we don't want to feel the pain of that again um but I think what we're forgetting in that moment is how we felt when we were living with that open heart, when we were feeling in love, you know, when we were feeling the experiences that were bringing us joy in that relationship um, compared to how it feels to move through life closed down simply out of fear that we're going to experience the same thing that we experienced when our heart was broken. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Scott, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So I actually uh, was introduced to you and your work by way of your publisher who sent me your book, um, Big Love, The Power of Living with a Wide Open Heart. And uh, I was really blown away by the concepts in the book. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up and what impact did where you grew up end up having on your life? Well, I grew up in the Detroit suburbs. So, um, yeah, suburban Detroit. And what impact did it have on my life? I, I would say where I grew up, I grew up in an area, um, one of the West Side suburbs, which at the time of my youth were incredibly diverse. So I grew up around the kids of all faiths and colors and everything going on. And it was, I don't think I even understood at the time what a gift that was because, you know, we're just, we're just doing what we do. This is the norm for us. Um, until I moved <laughs> at 14, um, into a different, and it, it was at the time that I lost my parents, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved in with my eldest sister and we moved to one of the east side suburbs of Detroit, which was entirely white and Christian, um, which I was, I, I was white and Catholic. So it wasn't like this massive adjustment that I had to make, but the adjustment was really um, in recognizing that the kids that I was around now had no exposure to anyone different in any way. And I mean, I I remember explaining bagels, you know, and explaining Jewish people and and having conversations that I, that I couldn't believe I was having, but I, I mean, I understand that we, you know, we grow up wherever we grow up and we're exposed to whatever we are exposed to. And that becomes our reality. But in retrospect, when I reflect back on, on my youth in the neighborhood where I grew up, I'm super grateful to have been introduced to, um, to diversity at a very young age. And I also spent time as a kid working at my parents' market in Detroit, in downtown Detroit. So also had exposure to um, a completely, a completely diff- different demographic, which was predominantly um, poor African Americans. And, um, and again, that brought with it, uh, it brought with it a lot of questions and also a lot of value. You know, I think that uh, I, when I look around and I and I see so much of um, the division that we're all feeling and in this country, I think so so much of it would be and could be alleviated if we would just spend a little time getting to know people who aren't exactly like 
uh, ourselves and our family and the people we tend to surround ourselves with. You know, if we could make a point to visit different neighborhoods with people of different faiths or different colors or, you know, and, and tra- and I, I get that not everybody has the finances to travel to different lands and different cultures, but, um, you know, we can get in a car, get on a bus and just go to the next city over or a couple towns over. And we're likely to find people who don't all act and look like we act. Um, so yeah, so I think where I grew up impacted me in a very positive way. It, it helped me to become open in ways I might not have been as a young kid. So, you know, you think for most of us, I mean, I don't know how old you are, but like when we think of Detroit, we think of, you know, what we see on the news now, which is this city that has like fallen apart and it kind of represents sort of the the worst possibilities of what could happen in this country, at least from the media perspective. Um, What what I'm curious, you know, did that happen while you were growing up? Um, And, you know, what was it like to see that? And, And two, you know, for people who are not from there, what misperceptions do you think we have based on what we see? Um, well, you know, growing up in the suburbs as a white kid, I'm 46 years old. So I was, you know, I, I was born in 71. Um, we were instructed never to go into Detroit that basically given the sense that you would be killed or maimed in some way if you went into the city. So going, you know, I grew up with the understanding that, that big cities, you didn't go into them, you stayed away from them. And it was only as I got older and, you know, I, and I realized, wow, all of these cities around our country, the the people are actually like going to them with excitement to explore what's going on. And we're being told as suburban white kids never enter Detroit. Obviously I did with my parents and the, the market that they owned, which is is also the market where they were killed, was not in a particularly safe neighborhood of the city. Um, I never felt for a second unsafe when I was working with them. You know, everyone who came in, it was just it was familial and it was the neighborhood and, you know, the people there. So I think that, but for people who don't know Detroit and who would come, I was away for most of my adult life. I just moved back here uh, about six or seven months ago. Um, and, uh, and for people who don't know the city, I would say that you really can't imagine just how devastated parts of Detroit are. I've never, I've, I've visited many, many cities in this country and and around the world, but in this country and have have never seen a city that comes close to Detroit in terms of it's in, in some areas, it's apocalyptic feel like you literally can drive down blocks and blocks of boarded up or burned out homes for blocks. Um, Detroit's a massive city. I don't know the, the size in my head, the area, but it's a, it's a huge city. And so from that perspective, I think that people who are told Detroit on the news, and I understand the reputation, it is kind of this dire apocalyptic place in ways it's much worse than you can imagine. And in other ways, it's it's not nearly as dangerous as the news would have us believe. You know, I, I'm, I'm living in Detroit now, and, and also Detroit is having a resurgence. It's having a bit of a renaissance, a quite a quite a, a profound renaissance right now. Businesses, um, some big businesses have moved into the downtown area, and uh, a lot is happening in a in a few neighborhoods of Detroit specifically, where there's a lot of restaurants opening, a lot of businesses opening, a lot of artists creating incredible art. You know, all of that, um, all of that stuff that typically happens in cities that were maybe a little too dangerous, but suddenly. Um, suddenly one business comes in and opens up and then the artists who are leaving the cities who have suddenly become too expensive to survive are discovering like Detroit is an affordable city um, with a vibrant artistic community and with really good people you know like I think that I mean I grew up in the Midwest and uh, so perhaps there's a bias I don't know but there's you know the Michigan's a friendly place to be you know it's the type of place that when you're walking in and out of stores, people aren't just like, hi, how are you? But you, you can easily engage with conversations with people who really want to know how your day's going. And 
I live in an area of Detroit called Eastern Market. Right now I'm about to move, but it's uh, a farmer's market that's been around for 150 years. And every Saturday, upwards of 50,000 people come in from all over southeastern Michigan primarily um, to this market. And it is, um, it's really just a tapestry of everything, all colors and sizes and shapes and faiths and, and the feeling you get every Saturday, at least what I get in, in, and it really is a destination. People want to visit this part of Detroit on Saturdays. They look forward to going to the market and it's just people like living their lives and enjoying themselves and interacting with others from the area. So that's, um, I think there is, I'm certain there is that others would claim a downside to to what's happening here in that I don't know how much what's going on in these certain central areas of the city and downtown. At this point, I don't think that they're extending into the outer reaches of Detroit, which is where people are really struggling and really poor and really hurting. And I hope certainly that that shifts. I don't see how what's happening downtown could be a negative because it's bringing it's bringing a lot of energy and a lot of income um, into Detroit and it's shifting the perceptions of Detroit. And I just hope that it transcends the few different districts, um, you know, into the outer boroughs. But I think if you were to come visit Detroit, assuming you've never been, uh, you would have, you would be amazed. You would, you would love it. You would walk around and see some of the most incredible art murals on sides of buildings that I've ever seen anywhere in the world. You would, uh, you would visit, some of the um, the restaurants and some of the shops um, being you know opened by by people of all ages and all demographics, and you'd get a sense of the spirit of uh, a city that has had its share of of tragedy and and I mean was maybe five or six years ago was bankrupt, you know a major American city that went bankrupt and considered selling all of the art from the the premier. Um, museum here, the Detroit Institute of Arts, which is a stunning, stunning museum. You know, they were considering selling all of the art just to contribute to the uh, the debt of the city. That's how dire it was. And luckily, they didn't have to do that. Um, so I think you'd see a lot of things, you know, you'd, you'd see a You'd see you'd see everything, but I think what you'd feel in a lot of the areas of the town is um, an excitement about what's happening and what's coming next. It's interesting to to listen to you tell that story. It almost seems like a, a profound metaphor for your own life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, maybe. So speaking of which, um, you know, you mentioned that your parents passed away, and I know I, I definitely didn't want to get out of this conversation without talking about that. Um, you know, one, can you kind of you know give our listeners sort of the the rundown on how it happened? Um, but more than that, I, I'm curious, you know, like at 14, what it's like to process something like that emotionally and how the emotional processing of such a tragic event has changed over the course of your life. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, my parents were murdered in their market in Detroit when I was 14 years old. They were shot to death. And um, as far as processing that at 14, I don't know how. Look, I don't think there are rules in general around grief and around how we process anything. I only know what I did at the time, which was to bury it away completely, like out of sight. I mean, I would say the first few months after my parents' death are are very blurry, and I think there, you know, a lot of tears and a lot of shock and and overwhelm. But it very quickly, I. I put the experience inside and moved on with my life. I transferred schools to move. I moved in with my eldest sister and her family, transferred schools, um, didn't talk about my parents. Of course, I thought about them, but never talked about them, kept the fact that I was an orphan a secret as much as I could to anyone. And um, in part because because I was 14 and couldn't deal with it. You know, I, I'm sure that was part of it, even though I wasn't, I don't feel like at the time I was consciously doing anything. When I reflect back on, on that time, I'm so grateful that something within me knew to bury it away because I don't really think I would have been able to handle the grief of it, the weight of that grief. Um, 
So I created a big secret around it in the new school. I would never talk about my parents. I would manipulate any conversation that could in any way steer toward family and parents. I would shift the subject. I mean, I was like a master. I be, was like a master chess player, honestly, in in keeping the secret. And obviously, some friends would ultimately find out. I, you know, friends that I I would become closer and they'd come to my house and, you know, eventually you're going to get asked about your parents as a teenager. It, it happens. Um, but I, I exhausted a lot of energy keeping it a secret. I felt ashamed of being an orphan. I felt like a freak. I felt like nobody could relate to not having both their parents and certainly nobody I, I was around could relate to their parents being murdered. And I didn't want pity I didn't want to experience that moment of shock when someone finds out and you, you tell them what happened and they have no idea how to be or how to respond to it. I mean, even today, I'm 46 years old. This is 31 years ago and 32 years ago. And even today, when I share my story with people who have no idea, the, they're so shocked and overwhelmed by it. But I, I'm able to handle that shock and overwhelm in a completely different way than I was able to handle it as a teenager. Um, only in into my, when I was in my early 20s, I, I graduated from college in Michigan and moved to San Francisco. <clears throat> excuse me. And that, at that time, I got a job at a kind of a new age gift store and they had an incredible book section with all of these self-help spirituality, you know, personal development type books. And I was meeting a lot of new people in my life who were, um, who were talking about, you know, love and compassion as goals rather than career. And they were talking about being honest with their darkness and all of these, this way of, and talking about enlightenment, which at the time wasn't even anything I was aware of. So I was being introduced to all these people and having these deeper conversations. I was reading all these books and I was starting to recognize that though it had served me so well to, to keep my, you know, my parents murder buried. Um, it also, the walls that I had created to dealing with it were also walls that I had put up to connections with people because I wasn't really showing up honestly, or at least as honestly as I could. I was carrying this big secret. I mean, I was also carrying a secret around my sexuality, around being gay, which was another profoundly shameful thing that I was holding on to. Um, so I, I started to recognize that I, I needed to, to grieve my parents in a different way. You know, I needed to make myself available to feeling the sadness and to feeling the rage and, and just to feeling period, you know, like I think that we're men, especially we are conditioned so deeply not to really be emotional and not to really feel in our society in general, which is so highly addictive in, in, in part because we're numbing ourselves and escaping any emotions that are uncomfortable and we're turning to alcohol and we're turning to drugs and shopping and the internet and all these other things that we're turning to, to keep from just sitting and being present in our feelings. And, um, we can't know that we're able to sit and be present in our feelings without them killing us unless we allow ourselves to do it. So in my 20s, working at the store, reading these books, having these friendships, I really started to shift the way I approached my life, you know, and I recognized at the same time that love was a big component of that, that the more aligned I am with operating from the energy of love, the more I'm going to serve myself and everyone else involved in my life. And so, so how did, you know, you asked how does growing up with that um, experience, how does it affect you? And I would say that one of the ways, uh, one of the gifts that came from, from losing my parents and having to deal with the grief of it and, and the sadness of it is just feeling like I'm so much more uh, empathetic and compassionate and available to others who are dealing with grief than I feel like I, I probably ever would have been. I mean, I think I would have found my way there anyway. You don't have to have your parents murdered to be an empathetic, compassionate, loving person. I'm not suggesting that. But I see the ways in which 
those of us who have experienced great grief, which when you're an adult, it's most of us, it's almost all of us, um, or great loss, how much more present we can be in the pain of others if we choose to be, and that that's one of the great gifts of sadness. Um, and I also see that, you know, we're given experiences in our lives that we, we live through and we overcome you know, we transcend ultimately. And, and one of the great gifts of that is just the recognition of the strength and resilience that lives within me, you know, that lives within all of us when we're, um, when we're faced with a, with a horrible, uh, life changing obstacle and we figure out a way to move on and move forward despite that experience. Um, yeah. So there's some things. So, um, you know, it's interesting because I've gotten to talk to a lot of people who, you know, have, have told me stories of, of really difficult things, you know, having gone on in their lives and often that being one of the biggest catalysts for, you know, a significant transformation, both personally, professionally and, and you know, numerous areas of their life. Um, you know, but I'm curious, you know, why you think it is that you know, one person would have the sort of response and reaction that you did and, and having it be this transformative thing that you have. And somebody else could have gone through that exact same experience and as a result found themselves in prison. Yeah, I, you know, I don't have a good answer for that, honestly. I think that it it could be, I was the youngest at the time, the youngest of seven kids. I've since lost a brother, but um, I, I was lucky to have siblings with whom I was close um, that that certainly could have impacted. I mean, look, I, I, I feel really lucky because I see how at the time I could have just been like, screw you life, screw you God, screw you, whatever I believed in at the time and gone down a very, very different path. And I can't, as much as I talk a lot about, you know, ownership and taking ownership and responsibility for the lives we're living. Um, I don't feel like it can honestly, take complete ownership of my choices as a 14 year old, because as I said earlier, I don't think that everything came from a conscious place. I feel like, uh, something in me knew to bury it, that that was going to be the best way for me to deal. You know, and I was a really good student, had lots of friends and just kept down that path. Um, but I see that I could have made a very different choice. So I don't, I don't have a good answer for you. I think that, you know, when we have familial support that can certainly play into it, but you know, others with, uh, incredible family support still make really bad decisions for themselves that lead to, you know, horrific life choices. So I don't really know. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You know, for so many of us, when we've been hurt or dumped or betrayed or disappointed in some way, I think the tendency is not to really open our hearts, but more to close them and become protective. And, and I'm curious, you know, you've experienced things that are probably far more painful than most of us ever will. How do you stay open in, in difficult situations that are really trying? Well, you know, I don't, I don't know that we have to, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to close your heart initially, if that's what you're being called to do, if that's in, if that's what your pain is, is asking you to do in the moment, or if that's all you're capable of in the moment. I think that ultimately, if you're moving through your life with a closed heart, because of this one event, no matter how tragic it was, you're not doing yourself any service. So I, I just recognize, you know, from many experiences in my life, I know what it's like to move through my life with an open heart, to move through, through my life with, um, with love as a guiding force and with the desire to connect with others from a vulnerable, open and loving space. It has transformed my life profoundly. So I, I feel like when we have the experience, and if you look at the th- the reasons, let's say you're you were dumped, you know you you were you were in love and the person left you and you were left completely heartbroken by that experience, which is why many of us would be inclined to shut down and to close our hearts because we don't want to feel the pain of that again. Um, but I think what we're forgetting in that moment is how we felt when we were living with that open heart, when we were feeling in love, you know, when we were feeling the experiences that were bringing us joy in that relationship. Um, compared to how it feels to move through life closed down simply out of fear that we're going to experience the same thing that we experienced when our heart was broken you know and in in my life i found that that Yes, I've probably saved myself from certain pains because I've made choices out of fear, but I've also prevented myself from who knows how many incredible possibilities that I might have created by moving forward despite the fear and moving forward with the fear. So we can talk about, we, you know, the human mind is a master of creating the the most dire what if scenarios. So when your heart's broken, but you find yourself attracted or maybe falling for someone else and your mind is like, but what if this person breaks my heart again? Or what if this person dies? Or what if, you know, what if all these nightmare situations happen if I follow my heart and move forward? 
okay, all of those things can happen. You know, it's rare that all of the worst what ifs happen that our minds create, but okay, all of those things will have might happen and they're not going to kill you. You know, you will, but, but how is it going to feel if you prevent yourself from taking risks or taking chances or moving forward in accordance with your heart's desires, simply because you're afraid of all of these unknowns, most of which are, are unlikely to happen. And I started to realize it's just not a good enough reason. My fears are just not a good enough reason to keep me from living a life that I want to live. It's not, you know, I've been facing my fears a lot in these past years in terms of my creativity and and putting myself out there creatively and, and looking at all the ways in which my fear would have prevented me from sharing myself in the ways that I'm sharing myself today. Um, and looking that even as I put my writing out there and I have this book out there and I do these live videos all the time and every time before these live videos, even though I've done hundreds of them on Facebook now, I'm always nervous. I'm always afraid that I might be misunderstood or I'm always afraid that I might be judged in some way. Um, or that I might be understood and judged in some way. Um, and still, I push the go live button, and I do my thing, and I recognize that, you know what, we're going to be judged no matter what we do. So let's just show up as authentically as possible, and uh, people will judge us for our truth then. you know. And, and the high that comes from from, from being, and look, uh, I want to, as an aside, I'm not always authentic. I'm not always living in my truth as much as I'd like. I'm certainly not always loving as much as I'd like, but I'm, I'm more of those things than I've ever been in my life. And my life is better than it's ever been in great part because I'm showing up with my truth and I'm doing my thing. And, um, And people are responding in a beautiful way and connecting to me in a beautiful way, I think in part because I'm willing to talk about my insecurities and my fears and my story, Mm -hmm. as well as my joys and my triumphs, and as well as sharing whatever wisdom I've gleaned from my life as a 46-year-old man, you know, in this country and world. Um, I'm I'm sharing all of those things and... uh, I don't know. I think it's creating a space and an openness for others to feel like they can also share their truth. They don't have to just post and share the beautiful stuff, but that they, if they feel comfortable and if they feel courageous enough to be vulnerable, that by sharing their struggles as well, one, they're going to feel a lot less alone and they're going to help other people to feel a lot less alone as well. All right, I went way off tangent there, so I, I don't know where we are. No, but that is that is absolutely beautiful. Um, you know, I'm curious uh, if you can walk me through the journey from leaving college to the point of writing this book. Like, what happened between then and now? Between college and now, um, well, in my 20s, I went to San Francisco and smoked a lot of pot and partied, you know, like partied a lot and had a, had a, you know, the store that I mentioned that new age store, I worked there on and off for a good six years. And a lot of my twenties was really, um, having a good time and also, excuse me, diving into a more conscious spiritual path, like becoming much clearer about what I believe is important in my life. Um, things like love and compassion and kindness and giving a lot of energy and time to fostering those things in myself. So also at that time, that's when I, I joined a cult in my mid twenties, um, which I, I write about in the book as well. Um, do you want me to talk about, I mean, I can, do you want me to jump to my thirties? Do you want me to talk about the cult a little bit right I'd now? I'd love to hear Where, about the cult. Yeah. <laughs> How can you pass up an opportunity for someone to talk about a cult, right? Um, well, you know, I was, I was becoming way more open in my life. This was when I was around 24 and I'm meeting all these people who are talking about peace and love and they kept talking about their spiritual teacher. And so they became really good friends of mine and it was only a matter of time, you know, before I was, you know, dying to meet this teacher that they were crediting with so much of their spiritual growth. And I didn't know a thing about gurus and spiritual teachers or anything really before meeting them. And, and so I met him and I was really charmed by him and he 
professed himself to be an enlightened master. And at that time, enlightenment was what I realized was my true goal. Like that was the thing. I, this isn't the case now, but at the time, all I wanted to do was to become enlightened, that that was my mission on earth as I saw it. And he was a man who was enlightened and he had a path and he was going to help get me there. And so it took me a year from the first time I met him and spent a few hours with him. It wasn't until a year later that I actually called him again. And I think in part because I understood that to be, become his student was a big commitment. It was a big, in, in many ways, it was a big energetic commitment. It was a big time commitment. It was going to end up being a financial commitment. It was going to be a commitment in every way imaginable. And I don't think I was really ready for it. But then a year later, I found myself writing about him in my journal. And again, I'm surrounded by students of his in my daily life. So it wasn't like he was invisible to me. Um, and I realized, you know, I'm ready for this. This is, I, I, if enlightenment's my mission, let's go for it as, you know, as, as big as possible. And I, uh, so I started working with him as a student and, and being, you know, committing my time and energy to this spiritual community, which essentially was, and I, I, it, it is a cult. It, there's, there's no question in my mind that it's a cult, but it's not when people hear cult, I think they tend to go and maybe you did, I don't know that, you know, they go to Manson or Jim Jones and drinking Kool-Aid and like all these like horrific, nefarious, scandalous things. And this wasn't a cult like that. I mean, it was, it was a cult in that it was built around one man and ultimately his needs were first, his needs were primary, and he professed himself to be something that he wasn't. And there was a lot of manipulation involved. And, uh, and uh, let's see where to go. So I spent years and I spent 13 years as a part of this cult, but not not the whole time in the Bay Area. So it, I was, you know, living in LA for parts of it and living in New York for parts of it. So I wasn't as enmeshed in the daily ritual of it. Um, but the the last few years before I ultimately quit, I was back in the Bay Area. And this was the main part of my life. I mean, and, and when I talk about daily rituals, things like, you know, regular student meetings, usually at least once a week along with just where we were gathered around the guru and asked him questions and he shared his wisdom as well as um, any number of social events each week where we would gather and just get together. I mean, this was my life. This was my family. This was the thing that mattered the most to me. And it was also my ticket to enlightenment as I saw it. But what I came to, what I struggled with also throughout um, was trusting his enlightenment and seeing him say things or act in ways that felt like even though he swore he had no ego, they felt like ego actions. You know, he felt in some ways incredibly egomaniacal in his unwillingness to ever be wrong about anything and that everything that he was saying was a directive from God, as he said it. He was a puppet of God and that any instructions he gave to us uh, was God speaking through him. So basically what we were conditioned to believe was that when we were an object, if we were objecting to him, we were objecting to God's will for us and we were objecting to our path to enlightenment. And look, I was a very, you know, I was a, an intelligent, rational person, because you can listen to this and think like, well, why did you, how could you believe that? You know, why were you such a sucker? Um, and I, when I reflect back on it, I, I, I wonder that in some ways too, except I also, I know that he was, he was very charming and very seductive. And when you're in a community of people whom you love and who, whom you are deeply, deeply connected to, and all of them are also believing in this man. And when you develop, I developed an incredibly close connection with this man. He was like a father to me and like a father I never really had. And he was like a best friend and he was a brother and he was, you know, the greatest mentor. Or I could could envision. He was all of these things that whenever my objections 
to to what he was saying or whenever my suspicions that maybe his intentions weren't just about my healing but maybe they were really about his comfort um you know his lifestyle his his world um i would i would just tell myself you're not enlightened so you don't know what it looks like to be enlightened you know and i would talk myself back into trusting him until i couldn't anymore you know it took me about a year from the point that I really considered moving on from his path and from him as a teacher, it took me a good year to getting to the point of leaving in part for two main reasons. One, because I feared that I would lose my community of friends who were really my closest family. Um, and also because I was afraid I was going to be cursed by God. I mean, that was the message we get. You do not betray him. You do not betray an enlightened master or you will be cursed by God. And so, and, and I didn't even really believe in God, not really, or not clearly. And I still felt like, I don't want to risk this, you know, like this to sounds, um, you know, it sounds like maybe more than I could handle. So it, it, it took me a year and I sent him an email and I, after 13 years, I, I, I broke up with him in an email and because I didn't feel like I had the strength to do it in person or even over the phone because I knew he could talk me into staying. And I was really clear I didn't want to stay. And I did lose all my friends. He, he had them delete me from their lives, uh, which was an incredibly traumatic experience because my hope at the time was I, I was staying connected to all of them they, they as friends. And my hope was to also stay connected to him as a friend down the line. But after, you know, I needed a break. I needed a clean break with no contact. Um, but so I lost those friends and I don't, as far as I know, I haven't been cursed by God. You know, like I, I feel like my life is, uh, has, has flourished a lot since my time in, uh, in the cult. And I've never for a moment regretted leaving. I've missed my friends a lot and I've even missed him a lot, even though I think that in some ways he's, uh, you know, a very messed up individual, but I also think that he's a very loving individual. And I, I look back on my time there with a lot of gratitude because I learned a lot, you know, in, and even though so much of what we were talking about, like all of the unconditional love and all in unconditional friendship, I don't feel like he or my friends ultimately reflected those messages. I still recognize how much those messages were integrated into who I am as a person, you know, and uh, I'm grateful for that. And I, you know, when I write about this in the book, uh, I, the, the, the message that I, I convey in talking about this is, and, and I think it's important because I think that there are a lot of us seekers out there, spiritual seekers, and, and we tend to look for teachers, you know, in whether it's through podcasts or books or actual physical human beings or whatever it is, we're, uh, we're always looking for teachers to help us along the way. And, the, you know, the message I, I want to share with people is that, you know, it's, and we're born into tribes, we're born into conditioning, we're born into ways of being, whether it's with our religions or, or whatever else, we're told at a young age what it is we're supposed to feel and think, and we, we tend to be surrounded by people who feel and think one way. And it's, it can be very difficult to step outside of that tribe and of that way of thinking. And, you know, no matter how long you have had a teacher in your life, even if it's been 10 or 12 or 20 years, if you find that all of a sudden that person or those messages no longer resonate with you or no longer feel, you know, feel like they're serving you in your life in a positive way, it's never too late to walk away. It's never too late to say no to a, a specific teacher. And, and when we do so, we create um, we create an opportunity and possibilities and an openness to find new teachers in our lives. Um, but it comes, it can come with a price. You know, we, we move on from tribes and it doesn't mean the tribe is always going to move on with us. But if we're staying in something simply because of the people who are choosing to stay there and not because it's aligned with what feels right and true for us, we are doing ourselves a disservice, I believe. And, um, and there's no saying 
you know, what people and possibilities we can attract when we move through our lives in, in accordance with what's real for us, you know? Yeah. You know, there's a quote about happiness that really um, struck me in this book. And, you know, you said one of the greatest barriers to our happiness lies in the stubbornness with which we seek it outside ourselves, outside of ourselves in clothes and cars and husbands and girlfriends and TV and drugs and, 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 um, you know, I looked at that and I, I underlined it cause it caught my attention. And this is something that I've asked numerous social science researchers and I still haven't found an answer that satisfies me, but, um, I'm curious, you know, I think we all, everybody knows that intellectually, right? Like we've heard it a thousand times from everybody from social science researchers to happiness researchers, but at the same time, it's almost like you you have to seek it outside of yourself before you truly get it. Where you know it's kind of like the people who have money are the ones who always tell you money won't make you happy. Sure. Yeah. And I, I'm curious why that is, and how do you how do you shift from the point of okay, I don't need to seek this outside of myself because I can find it within myself. Um, well. I think it's what you said. I think that we have to learn what we can and can't do by experience, you know, and I think that, so that's one thing. I think that once you realize that you're in a relationship with someone you really love and you're still unhappy, <laughs> that, that ultimately a loving relationship isn't the answer necessarily any more than the perfect car or a lot of money. But I think that the thing around, I'd, I'd say a few things about happiness. One is that, it's much harder to go within and explore all of the reasons inside and all of the truths that are preventing you from finding more joy more often in your life. Like that takes really, really hard work. And I think it's, it's the kind of work that a lot of people don't want to do. So they would rather think that I'm going to get it from this, I'm going to get it from that, and they're going to put their energies into these things outside of themselves. Because when we really start to look within, when, and, and when we really do it from an honest, open place, we're going to be confronted with a couple realities. One is really beautiful, which is that, oh my God, the expansiveness of our, our beauty and our worth as a human being, there, there are no words for it. It's like this life and this existence is so profound and the capacity for love is so big and it's so beautiful and incredible. And that truth is one that's kind of easy and exciting to hold on to. But the other truth that comes from going within is the recognition that human beings are positively disgusting creatures and that that what the amount of envy and rage and blame and all of these other ugly, disgusting things to feel that I have inside, that's also part of the human story. You know, I believe we are, we are the most beautiful to the most ugly and everything in between. And it's easy, easier to embrace the beautiful stuff. But when you have to start being honest with how, how envious of you are of your best friend who just got a promotion at work, and rather than feeling really happy for him, you're, you're spiting him you know, and feeling more comfortable when he's struggling in his job, like confronting these emotions that are very real human things in all of us to some degree. Um, it's hard work. And to be able to accept it and then be present with it and love yourself and forgive yourself for all of it. It's really, really hard work. And I don't think people want to do that work. The other thing that in general, I should that I, I think a lot of people are are, are doing that work to varying degrees, but a lot of people would rather just point fingers and blame or buy the new car and get the dopamine hit from the Facebook likes and all of those other things that ultimately um, are easier mm -hmm. than confronting our truth. The other thing I would say about happiness, though, is that, again, uh, you know, in the, in the world of personal development, we're being trained that happiness is a choice. And that you can just choose happiness. And there are thousands of memes that say happiness is a choice and choose happiness. And it's just not true. You know, ha happiness is an emotion and we can't, we're not, we can't choose our feelings. That's not how feelings work. And I think that we do a disservice to ourselves and all involved when we, when we suggest that you can choose happiness at any time. Because when I, when I felt like I could choose happiness, those times that I was really feeling down or sad, not only was I feeling sad, I was also feeling 
feeling like a failure because I'm supposed to be able to choose happiness as a spiritually evolved person and I can't do it. You know, when my heart's broken, I can't just say, I declare myself to be happy. That's not how it works. And I also think that we, we're not meant to be happy all the time. It's not reality. And that there are, yes, that happiness is a beautiful thing to feel. And, um, and I love the times when I'm feeling it, but there are gifts in the other emotions too. I mean, there, there is great value in anger because it tends to show us what we, what we see as unjust in our world. It tends to get us off our butts and to potentially take action. It's just that anger alone doesn't create healing. That's when we always have to weave back. I believe we have to see, well, what can compassion do with this anger? What can love do with this anger? You know, but anger is a, a powerful emotion. Sadness is, as I said earlier, has helped me to connect with people in ways that my happiness never could have, you know. But I, I mean, to your question, I think we only, you know, we, it takes falling down a zillion times and realizing, okay, if I don't, if I, if I continue to walk in this way where I'm falling on my face, I'm going to continue to fall on my face. So I need to, to figure out a different way to move forward in my life, um, to create different results. And only I think when people realize that no matter how many possessions they have, no matter how many drugs they do, all of that stuff, only when they do it all, can they start to recognize that that's not where their inner joy lives. Not really. Mm, Wow. I have a feeling that answer didn't satisfy you either, but I don't know. Yeah, no, it, that was profound and beautiful. I mean, it's one of those answers that I will have to go back and play and really listen to more than once. Um, you know, I, I want to finish our conversation by uh, talking about one sort of final piece of this, which I, I thought was really relevant. And I think it's, it's a really interesting way to bring the conversation full circle. Um, you know, I caught this quote and I, I even Instagrammed it the other day because it struck me so much. You said, a willingness to forgive reflects a desire to take care of ourselves. We all know what it feels like to hold on to hatred and blame. It's the worst kind of poison. It clouds everything. The more we resist the possibility of forgiveness, the more we invite the probability of unhappiness. We allow for a toxic reality that only forgiveness can clear. Um, one, I, I thought that was beautiful, but what it made me question, want, want to ask you about was the, the moment that you decided to forgive the person who killed your parents and what that was like. <laughs> Well, it wasn't a moment, that's for sure. It was a it was a process. And I think forgiveness in general is, I think it's, you know, of the different mandates of love, I think forgiveness is the toughest for most of us. And that was that was actually one of the greatest gifts that came from from the experience with my parents was seeing that I I could take a situation that most people would deem unforgivable and ultimately find a way to forgive. And it was in a word, it was empathy. You know, when I, I wasn't thinking about forgiving him when I, you know, when I was a teenager, the thought of forgiving him didn't even cross my mind. I was just trying to like survive and, you know, move forward. But, uh, you know, you start to realize, I started to, to realize that when I would think about him, it was always with anger and rage and blame and, you know, vengeful thoughts and ugly thoughts. And we all know what it's like to, to feel that way and how toxic those thoughts feel and how I don't even think we realize that when we're lost in blame and when we're unwilling to forgive, I don't even think we can know how much of an impact that has on us physically and emotionally. But we do know that when our our mind is caught up in all of that negative, toxic chatter, it's taking a toll. And so I didn't necessarily know how I would forgive the man who murdered my parents, but I I started to become open to, to the possibility. And then I started to imagine his story. You know, what was it? What is, what was his life like? And I didn't, I didn't know any details. I didn't know the reality of his struggle, but what I did know with absolute certainty was that nobody who's operating from a place of self-worth or self-love or feeling seen by this world or feeling safe in this world would murder other people. It's just not possible. And so I, I can relate, I could relate to feeling unworthy. I could relate to lacking self-love. I could relate to feeling unseen. I could relate. I couldn't relate to killing someone, but I could relate to feeling so angry about things that public figures had said and done that I wanted them to die. It's like all of those things I could connect to in this person. 
And what I realized was that I was connecting to his humanity, that yes, he did a horrible, horrible thing and that had a, a, an incredibly, you know, tra- tragic uh, impact on many, many people. And he was still a human being. And whatever his life was to that point that led him to do that, that stuff, that, that, that was marked by so much tragedy and so much pain. And once I started to recognize that this is another human being here and started to imagine like, Hey, I don't know his pain, but I know my own and started to really connect with him from that space. Uh, it was, it was like forgiveness found me. And it wasn't even in a moment. It was just, it was seeing that through empathy and through compassion that when I would start to think about him, I recognized I have forgiven this man. I am thinking about him with love in my heart and with forgiveness in my heart. And it was only possible when I, when I tried to put myself in his shoes and imagine his story. Wow. Wow. Um, well, I think that makes a really uh, beautiful end to our conversation. So I want to finish by asking you one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? That makes somebody unmistakable? Wow. That's a good question. I mean, I think that I look, I believe one, I believe that we are born worthy. Like, I don't think there's a person on earth that's any more or less worthy than you are in this moment or than I am in this moment. Um, and I think that, that ultimately it, for me and my experience, and, and it's called the unmistakable creative. So, and I think this is connected to creativity certainly is, um, just truth, you know, how, how truthfully are you showing up in your life, in your relationships, in your creativity, you know, in yourself, in your willingness to, in your idiosyncrasies, in your insecurities, in everything that makes you, you, I feel like, um, that's when we become unmistakable. That's when we become, you know, when it's impossible to confuse us with anyone or anything else. Mm. Wow. Um, well, this has been truly amazing, um, beautiful, profound, and thought-provoking. Uh, where can people uh, learn more about you and your work? Well, they can go. I would, I'd recommend finding me on Facebook because that's where I do most of my posts, and I do a lot of live videos there, and those are always fun. You can tune in from anywhere in the world in real time. Um, that's, and if you just search for Scott Stabile, you'll find me there. And then my website, scottstabile.com. And then my book's out. It's called Big Love, The Power of Living with a Wide Open Heart. And it's, you know, at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and in stores all over the place. So you can find that too. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.